is Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. The boys are back in town. <laughs> we do not have the rights to that song. <laughs> and today, we're going to be talking about Seijin Suzuki. Okay, Seijin Suzuki, born <laughs> Saitaro Suzuki, 24th May 1923 to February 13th. Hey, hey, stop reading the copy I wrote myself. Was a Japanese filmmaker, actor, and screenwriter. His films are known for their jarring visual style, irreverent humor, nihilistic cool, and entertainment over logic sensibility. Citation needed. <laughs> so, uh, wait, why are you reading the Wikipedia entry, Will? Because that's what I did this week. <laughs> well, you watched some of his movies, too. I did. I watched two of his films. I watched probably two, his two most famous films, I dare say. Tokyo Drifter and Branded to Kill. What did Mm -hmm. you watch this week? I watched Tokyo Drifter, Branded to Kill, some of his older pictures when he was doing B-movies for Double Bills. And I watched some of his later pictures as well after he came back from his blacklist, including uh, a story of sadness and sorrow. Wow, you just put me to shame every week in, in the work you do i i hats off to you sir i will offer no extra insight as much so i will keep my level on yours will don't worry so uh Sajin suzuki um is someone who justin and i uh i guess only had a nodding acquaintanceship with before this week i think i got off on the wrong foot with him frankly a few years ago because uh sometimes when i would visit my parents uh in kitchener you know we would watch a movie and sometimes i'd rent something from the video store we had video stores back then uh that i hadn't that i hadn't seen or that i had seen uh and you know sometimes i'd have good luck like a, a new leaf by lane may or nashville but then one day i rented this movie branded to kill and you were like an akatsu studio executive going what is this thing get well, it out of well, here well my parents uh god love them are not i would say uh huge fans so this was of, a family viewing yeah oh, okay. they're not huge fans of like asian genre cinema i don't think they particularly have much much interest in termite art um and then i remember us watching uh <laughs> some p- person right now is googling termite art <laughs> and they're like, wait wait what is this and then I remember us watching the Criterion interview with Suzuki that was on the DVD. Afterwards. As you would do with your family, watch all of the special features afterwards. Well, we, we watched this one, and in it, he was ta- Suzuki was talking about how he uh, the reason that he got the lead character to have a rice fetish in the film. The character is sexually aroused by the smell of boiling rice. And Suzuki said, I just wanted to give him uh, a little flair, something to make him interesting. Basically, there was no other meaning behind it oh that's something i got a lot reading interviews with suzuki about the art in his work is that he goes uh you know that seemed like something cool that i wanted to do like it comes from a very surface level place and so my dad saw this and said this guy's a hack (laughs) (laughs) and then that was it (laughs) well we should talk about where seijin suzuki came from because he spent many, many years before he made the weirdo pictures that he became famous for uh, doing kind of B-pictures. Films that would appear on the bottom of a double bill for Nikatsu Studios that when you worked for this company, they would hand you the script and you had to make it. And, and it was a very rigorous schedule, like what, two days pre-production, mm-hmm. 25 days shooting. You could say no, but then you probably wouldn't get a job again. Yeah, and, you know, the Japanese film industry at the time was very much like the American film industry of the 30s and 40s. It was a a rigid assembly line uh, structure. Uh, You had your A directors and your B directors. Uh, Actually, you know, whenever I see a Japanese genre movie of the 60s and 70s, I'm always struck by how beautiful they look. Mm -hmm. Well, because their technique is so cemented in the system that it creates these products that just look so perfect. Yeah, like a Zatoichi movie. Mm -hmm. uh, But 
this is, I guess, an idea that both of us are interested in and have talked about on this podcast a lot, which is the kind of studio hack the journeyman who imposes yeah it's his the, own it, vision yeah it's the auteur theory yeah exactly we yeah. talked about it when we did the michael curtiz episode yeah uh who's you know is a debatable contender for auteurship and mm-hmm. we talked about a lot on the edgar g elmer episode who uh i guess is more commonly recognized as an auteur and and this guy here probably more than any of these guys that we've ever talked about is somebody who imposed himself on these kind of disreputable uh, assembly line productions to the point where he imposed himself too much for his studio boss's liking and he got blacklisted. So what ended up happening was after years and years of making films like Detective Bureau 23, Go to Hell Bastards, he ended up making what on the surface was another just kind of pot boiler about a Yakuza who tries to make good and gets pulled back into his past called Tattooed Life. But at the end, in the climax, he gave it this really interesting visual flair. And the studio head said, stop doing that. Hmm. Like, I'm putting you on warning. Like, you better give us normal films from now on. So what did he do? In 1966, he turned around and made Tokyo Drifter. Now, I read uh, Tony Rain's obituary of Suzuki in the current issue of Sight and Sound. So this is where I, I guess I'm getting a lot of my material from. But he says that... You know, from 1955, 1956 to, um, you know, about 1963, Suzuki made 27 films. Um, Sometimes mul- like multiple ones yeah, a year, obviously. Yeah, yeah, just an insane schedule. And most of them are like pretty ordinary. Mm-hmm. And then there'll for- be like a few moments of like, whoa, that was cool. And, but then there was a turning point in 1963 with Youth of the Beast and The Bastard. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a key factor is that he hooked up with this production designer Taki Okimura yeah who actually came on for the bastard where mm-hmm. Suzuki said his style changed completely and the last 13 films for a period of increasing experimentation those are the movies that people love him for yeah so Tokyo Drifter for people that haven't seen it is this technicolor wonder filled with abstract sets and metaphorical ideas brought to life visually and it's really a simple tale of a hitman who gets into these complications with his gang and other gangs and stuff like that. He's a reformed hitman. That's right, Uh, yeah. Who gets pulled back in. Yep, yep. And it's... John Wick style. Just the way that it's presented with these, like, abstract stage-bound sets that would be mostly associated with MGM musicals Mm -hmm. that make it feel that much different. Heavy primary colors in Mm -hmm. the background. Um, There's this moment where the hitman goes... I need to be this close to my attacker to be able to shoot him. And then you visually see a red line in front of him of where he has to hit. It's a hard movie to talk about because, you know, so much of the appeal is in the visual. I mean, you, you'd kind of be better communicating the appeal of this film on like a Tumblr post. Mm-hmm. Uh, Which Suzuki it probably lives on forever and all those gifts that you see online. He is like the one perfect shot Twitter account like made sentient. <laughs> That's right. Um, I have, uh, I, I mean, I don't know. I went into this week hoping to love Suzuki and I, I like Suzuki. I liked these two films that we saw, but uh, I have reservations, and I think it's the feeling that they're a little less than the sum of their parts. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, do, I don't know. Does that does yeah, that sound Yeah, I can understand insane? what you say. Uh, I watched a lot of Suzuki films, like I said at the beginning of this podcast. And I started with Tokyo Drifter and Brandon to Kill, and though they're the highest of highs, and it's kind of a diminishing return for the other ones that I saw. Did you see anything like A Story of a Prostitute? I saw Gate of Flesh yeah. at the Lightbox when they did the retrospective on Suzuki, and I did not like it that much. 
<laughs> so Suzuki is weird because people usually think of him as a visual director, and that's the way that I see him as well, and that his character work sometimes leaves a lot to be desired, that it's difficult to interface with his films in a, an emotional way. Yeah, like, they're, they're very cold to the touch. Mm-hmm. Um, the characters are, you know, archetypes, and they're played very broadly. Mm-hmm. And he he does everything with this kind of ironic distance. It feels like there are quotation marks around everything. And maybe this is another reason why I'm having a little trouble connecting to the movies. Because you see yourself reflected in Suzuki? Yeah, Someone because who I... can't take something seriously? I, too, am cold and <laughs> incapable of love. Um... <laughs> But, you know, there are, like there are themes in these movies. So Tokyo Drifter is very much about the contrast between loyalty, you know, and profit as embodied by these two gangsters. But I don't feel like Suzuki actually takes it seriously. I don't think he cares like, about Suzuki, that. Suzuki is like joking around. And, you know, later in Branded to Kill, it's basically kind of a spy spoof. Yes. So, well, because it's so over the top, right? Yeah. I mean, I personally prefer Branded to Kill to Tokyo Drifter, that while Tokyo Drifter is kind of visually opulent, its story is pretty much straightforward. Yeah. Well, Branded to Kill is the weirder of the two. And for a little bit of backstory on Branded to Kill, after Tokyo Drifter, the Nikatsu boxes were like, what the fuck are you doing? <laughs> like, stop this. Now, there's many different versions of what went on after that. Some people say he was punished after Tokyo Drifter, and they said, you have to make something in black and white now with an even lower budget. Suzuki himself says that the studio gave him a script that was shit and he was replacing someone else and he had to do it really quickly. So he rewrote the script from scratch and that's why Branded to Kill is the way that it is. But Branded to Kill is like very jokey, but at the same time, beautifully visual. Uh, it's It looks stunning. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the, the black and white photography, I don't think I've ever seen higher contrast to black and white. <laughs> and the, the way that it's so playful and the way that it tells its story also allows people to probably read into more than is actually there. Well, I mean, getting back to that point about how, you know, the rice fetish mm-hmm. means nothing. It feels like these movies are just full of... I mean, I don't want to say the visual style is incoherent because it's not. But it's like every shot is this self-contained, stunning shot. But, yeah. But what does it all add up to except... except looks cool. Except it looks cool. And it always does look cool. It's always stimulating. It's never boring. I remember but, Quentin Tarantino being interviewed uh, when Kill Bill came out. And they went, oh, you know that scene where uh, Uma Thurman fights all the guys with swords in the Crazy 88 Club, in front of that colored background, you must be a huge fan of Suzuki, right? And you went, mm, I'm not a really big fan of Suzuki. I like scenes here and there, but I wouldn't call myself a fan of that filmmaker. Well, I'm not surprised, because when I think of the people that, that Tarantino is a fan of, you know, he likes somebody like John Woo, who's really cares about this this shit about loyalty and brotherhood and all that stuff. And you think that the ironic distance that Suzuki brings to his films? Well, I mean, now that I think of it, Tarantino is a bit of an ironist. <laughs> yeah, he is. Too. Uh, this is a podcast we're just setting up for people to write angry letters to us. I don't know. Like, I mean, he's obviously an incredible craftsman. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody with a better visual sense. But when I watch Suzuki's movies... The main thing I think is, okay, this is a director who took 
a, a not great script and managed to do this with it. But nothing beyond that, right? Yeah. Like, he's not imposing it with his own feelings. Yeah. I, w- I read some interviews uh, that were done for a German press book about Suzuki. And he, the interviewer is really trying to crack that auteurist code. Mm-hmm. And he's like, so, were you inspired by the films of Hitchcock or this or mm-hmm. that? And Suzuki goes, nah, not really. I don't really have time to watch movies and it doesn't interest me. Right. So, there's not a lot to grasp onto. There's not not a lot to think about afterwards and talking about other termite artist types that we've talked about somebody like edgar g elmer Mm -hmm. who is i mean for the most part totally incomparable to uh uh to suzuki but like everything in detour is infused with intense emotion the the expressionist visual style is totally in the service of the feelings that the plot is trying to evoke Um, while something like brian to kill like we said, is more that ironic distancing. Like, it's a joke. Yeah, he's purposefully working at cross-purposes from the material. Well, Uh, this is... Like, Brandon to Kill Tokyo Drifter would be my favorite movies when I was 12 years old. Yeah. Because that's, like, that's cinema, if you know what I mean. You're like, that's pure cinema. And watching them now, you kind of go like, I just want a little bit more. You know, we dug up Suzuki just to bury him. And, you know, I found out that uh, on Branded to Kill, he didn't do any storyboards. People call the film jazzy, Mm -hmm. not just because it has a very pronounced jazz musical score, but it it does have the sense that he's like this, like jazz flute player who's just kind of like riffing for the whole thing, which is one of the good parts of it. Well, I think that Branded to Kill for me also It does have undeniable energy is what I mean. Because it it this crazy story is grafted to the skeleton of a genre picture. And as I'll talk about a little bit later, when Suzuki got away from that, that's when his films became very difficult. Mm. Um, but here with Brandon to Kill, his last studio picture, he is still telling a story about assassins and double crosses and stuff like that. And while it's super crazy and goofy, it's still there to latch onto. So Brandon to Kill flopped. And I mean, it probably flopped because, you know, it was just released as a release to fail, basically. And Nikatsu was pissed at Suzuki to the point that they fired him. And Suzuki came back at them with a wrongful dismissal suit. And uh, in court, he was able to prove that uh, Nikatsu was basically firing him as a way to, I don't know, cover losses for something else. I don't know, there was some shifty business. Anyway, Suzuki, not only did he win, but he had enormous support from student groups, from Mm -hmm. fellow filmmakers. There was retrospective starting already after Brandon to Kill came out of Suzuki's work. Right. So, I mean, he's somebody, I mean, he didn't work for 10 years after that. Yeah, he was blacklisted. Uh, But he's somebody who eventually came back did a lot of essay films mm-hmm. uh, he acted in a lot of movies he even directed what was that one pistol opera yes which have you seen it i have it's like the most drunken you can get on suzuki style but it's also two hours long and Ugh. there's not really anything there so it's all expressionist sets and these beautiful vistas he shot it in academy ratio so full screen mm. so, and he uses this to his advantage completely there's this one shot that looks like a comic book or even like a video game level where two people are firing guns at each other and it's all about vertical space and how it's being utilized as this one still frame right and that came out in the early 2000s i guess Mm -hmm. and uh, one reason i've avoided it is because it honestly looks a little bit like self-parody 
Although, I don't know if you can get any more self-parody than his movies already are. Oh, you can. Okay. (laughs) Pistol Opera is basically as far as the Suzuki brand you could probably push forward. I mean, he did make a trilogy of films, uh, which were funded independently after that 10-year ban. And they won a bunch of Japanese Academy Awards. And there's a funny story behind them where he would have to go and tour them at first, playing them on an inflatable screen (laughs) because no cinemas would actually show them. But those films are pretty indecipherable um but he's somebody who like unlike a lot of sort of termite artist types he was well appreciated in his lifetime he only died uh, earlier this year mm-hmm. ha- after long having been canonized he you know lived to see many retrospectives of his work uh, many of his films are in the criterion collection now maybe this is another reason why i have just a little bit of distance from them because i could imagine if i stumbled onto these movies as kind of like you know, lost classics. It would be different. Yeah, yeah, because when I approach these films as well, it's look how important these are. Yeah. Criterion stamp. This is the canon, right? Yeah, here. exactly. Um, so I don't know. But I, having said that, I did like these two movies, even even though it probably doesn't sound like I did. <laughs> you should see them. I give them three stars out of four each. Oh, wow. Uh, I give them five bags of popcorn. <laughs> two thumbs up. And five waffles, like the critic Willie Waffle would give. Willie Waffle? You never Who's saw that? Willie Waffle? He's on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, his name is Willie Waffle, and he grades movies from one to five waffles. And I believe he's named after Saint Waffle. <laughs> so, the Canadian cold has faded away. The birds have started singing again, Will. And it's the summer season, which must excite all the moviegoers out there because it's time to jump into the cinema, get some of that cold air blasting in your face. Take off your shirt and work on that tan as the light from uh, Hollywood's most glittering stars uh, hits you right in the torso. Now, summer season for me is very exciting because I'm a simple man. Will, I assume that you're more like, ugh. Yes. I mean, you know, growing up, I, of course, loved the uh, Entertainment Weekly Summer Blockbuster Preview Guide. (laughs) Um, where I got to see uh, that, oh, Rush Hour 2 is coming out this summer. Finally! (laughs) I can stop doing those X's on my calendar. (laughs) Nowadays, I mean, we've talked about blockbuster cinema before. I think it's in a fairly uh, dispiriting state right now. I don't know what you're talking about, Will. What about The Mummy starring Tom Cruise (sighs) coming out? Oh, man. Well, I mean... Is there a more baffling series of decisions that led to this movie? (laughs) Now, is The Mummy part of that same monster cinematic universe that was Dracula Untold? was going to kick off? Uh, yes, but Dracula and Toll has been forgotten. It's not part of the <laughs> monster universe anymore. Now it's starting with the mummy. Tom Cruise fighting a mummy. Russell Crowe as Dr. Jekyll and Hyde. Dad Squad. <laughs> yeah, a movie for no one. Look, um, I'm always up for Tom Cruise. I think he's great. I you think- love the Universal Monsters? I, yeah, I guess. But I mean, they are, you know, just public domain monsters. Uh, <laughs> and the weird thing about The Mummy is, like, Brendan Fraser's Mummy came out, like, a few years ago. And they're using some of the same tropes. Tom Cruise is an adventurer. The Mummy makes a big cloud of dust that has a face. Sorry, welcome to life now. We're old enough now that all the all the stuff that is in our living memory is being remade and rebooted. Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> all right, all right. There's got to be some more movies that you'd be excited oh, about. Oh, Diary of a Wimpy Kid part whatever it is how about cars 3 <laughs> oh good god uh hey remember when pixar at one point like everything they were releasing
thing was gold. I just read an article in The Atlantic called um, What Happened to Pixar or something like that, which made the case that ever since they were sold to Disney and they're not an independent company anymore, now it's all about, you know, got to sell those toys, got to keep the got, got to keep the sequels coming, you know? Like, as a creative entity in Pixar, you must be feeling completely dispirited that it's like Toy Story 4. Cars three. I mean, look, I'm not. I'm personally not too worried because I know if Pixar starts sucking, you know, there's always something somewhere else. I mean, people say Kubo and the Two Strings is good. Like, <laughs> you know, all those DreamWorks pictures. Well, like, like maybe I, Shrek can come back. I don't know. I saw Sean the Sheep last year, and I thought that was pretty good. That <laughs> oh, that was on your top ten of the year. Wasn't it was it? like they're not making like Pixar doesn't have to have a monopoly on good good kids movies you're you're you're, you're like, right I'm, I'm fine with giving it up frankly i mean there's also some smaller films that are coming out like um the big sick which is uh, supposed to be a really fun romantic comedy uh sofia coppola's the beguiled based on the don siegel classic mm-hmm. uh which i've never seen but it's, oh it's great yeah i'm gonna have yeah. to check out and then there's like the important films like transformers the last night the new yeah. michael bay film i'm excited i might go see it i haven't seen a transformers film since the first one but well Here's what we're going to do. We're going to sit down, watch all four of them. Oh, good God. And then go see the fifth one. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. There's something about going to see a Michael Bay movie in the theater where, I mean, it might be punishing, but it would be interesting to see something that's that state of the art. Well, know? supposedly they shot it all on new IMAX cameras. Yeah. So it'll be like all in the IMAX form. So I'm curious about something that's like, like Michael Bay is such an extreme filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Uh so I'm ser- I- I'm interested in being immersed Listen, in that world. Since I've been able to buy movie tickets, I've seen every Michael Bay movie in theaters, and that ain't going to change now. <laughs> I saw 13 Hours in a theater, yep. and I thought it was uh, a flawed film, but yeah, not, it's not, okay. not without interest. You liked it more than I did, which is shocking. Yeah, that, that is weird. Um, so, uh, I, of course, the most anticipated film of the summer. Uh, Spider-Man Homecoming. Well, I'm curious about that one because uh, my man Michael Keaton is the <laughs> Oh, villain. that's right. You're contractually obligated to have to go see it. Yeah, I saw The Founder. Why not go see this one too? All right, what are you really excited oh, about? Oh, Pirates though? of the Caribbean, <laughs> Dead Men Tell No Tales, my friend. How, I mean, I know how this movie keeps chugging along like a zombie. Uh, it's so- money. <laughs> somebody has 14 properties to pay for, apparently. <laughs> so you shared me the link of the saddest celebrity story I've read in a long time. Yeah, uh, The Hollywood Reporter had a great rundown this week of of Johnny Depp's uh, financial and career woes. Um, and look, I'm not normally one for celebrity gossip, but I do like watching arrogant rich people spend themselves into oblivion. So I enjoyed uh, this article about Johnny Depp. <laughs> and the reveal that the fact that he wears hats all the time is because he has earpieces that feed him his lines. Oh, so sad. <laughs> I mean, he's a fucking awful actor now. Hey, I enjoy the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. And by that, I mean I enjoyed the first one. Yeah. So I'm hoping part five brings that magic back. I didn't see the previous one. I Why would you? Part, Rob Marshall. Yeah, part three was the last one I saw, and I did not like it. Mm-hmm. It did not finish the trilogy in a satisfying way. God, I don't know. Looking at this release schedule, like... I'm sorry, we've argued about blockbusters before, but how can you be anything but dispirited by this? There's a ton of shit that's Wonder coming out. Wonder Woman? I'm excited for Wonder Woman. Oh, give me a break. Yeah. Another fucking DC comics DC movie. movies are it, terrible. Yeah. But then you have stuff like Dunkirk, a movie that I'm not excited for at all. Yeah, right? <laughs> Well, Some people are. Some people were sharing that trailer like it was the second coming of you know who. Yeah, the Christopher pe- Nolan. Yeah, the people who are sad. The IMDb message board closed. <laughs> I 
think Dunkirk's going to flop, you know? I think, uh, and I have two reasons for that. One, I think the pendulum is swinging away from the Nolan mode of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Like, his his dark and gritty style is going out in favor of these, like, aggressively fun Deadpool, Guardians of the Galaxy things. And also, I think World War II nostalgia, that was... It's gone. Yeah, that was a 90s phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Saving Private Ryan and all that. It uh, Maybe the clock is winding down and Christopher Nolan being able to do whatever he wants. I think so. I mean... I don't know. Uh, hating on Christopher Nolan, the bad thing about it is he is like the one guy who gets to make movies at this level that aren't like superhero movies. And speaking of and passion, it's too bad he sucks. I don't think Christopher Nolan sucks. I do. I, <laughs> well, you don't like Memento? Yeah, it's okay. You don't like following? You can't like throw at me those two early indies as <laughs> literally to refute, his first film. <laughs> to refute that he sucks, okay? Oh, uh, I like Batman Begins. Yeah, okay, but but. Since the Dark Knight rises, no. Since the Dark Knight, oh, okay. And I think the Dark Knight's perfectly watchable. Yeah, you're Not... you're an insomnia fan, but <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I think the Dream One was not that great. I thought Interstellar was pretty laughable. I like Dream. I I I like both Inception and Interstellar. I I think Interstellar I enjoy probably the reasons Christopher Nolan doesn't want me to enjoy that it's super pulpy and goofy. Yeah, Nolan I think is the exact wrong person to make a movie about a dreamscape. (laughs) I mean, Nolan is so obsessed with like the rules of the universe and like you know actions and consequences. These are these are the things that drive him as an artist. So as a result, uh, Inception has an hour of Leo DiCaprio explaining to Ellen Page okay this is how a dream works and I've, I've put my dead wife on the fourth sub-basement of the dreamscape <laughs> and I can only access her by like an elevator the fu- no fuck that's not how dreams work yeah that's exactly how dream works dreams have their own logic I'm like how this yeah d- a rig- rigorously organized it does. logic when you're there it makes sense no, no, they have their own logic, but you can't like put your dead wife in a cage and then not expect her to come out. It's a dream. <laughs> and then, you know, I don't think Hollywood is completely uh, creatively bankrupt. We got the Emoji Movie. Oh, my God. Starring an, Patrick Stewart as Poop, right? <laughs> an inconvenient sequel. Oh, shit. Oh, no. Captain uh, Underpants on the way, I see. And Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets. Speaking of flops, uh, Luc Besson coming back with a giant Fifth Element style sci-fi movie starring everyone's favorite actors. The guy from A Cure for Wellness who also played the Green Goblin in Amazing Spider-Man 2. uh, Dehane something. Didn't that that fucking guy swear off movies, uh, Luke Besson? Remember when he retired? Did he? I don't remember that. He he retired after Arthur and the Invisibles. I remember that. He said he was going to make ten movies. Anyway, he's back, I guess. We should do an episode (laughs) on him at some point. A Stephen King adaptation, The Dark Tower. I'm excited about that. Uh, War of the Planet of the Apes. I think I won't see it. <laughs> no? I, yeah. I like the last Planet of the Apes. I've seen all of the Planet of the Apes films, and I think I'm done. <laughs> You're not. You're going to see it. Come on. No, I'm, I'm not going to see it. You have uh, Catherine Bigelow's new movie, Detroit. Ugh. Oh, man, you are just... I'm a, hard to please. Yeah, I'm bottle. Sorry. Whoa, what is this? Jerry Lewis has a new film. Oh. The Nut Job 2, Nutty by Nature. Oh, yeah. Does he do a voice in that? No, he doesn't. Oh, you know who does, though? Jackie Chan. In The Nut Job 2? Yeah. So yeah. you gotta see it, he right? Does. I skipped the last Kung Fu Panda film, so probably not. <laughs> oh, man, I didn't see that one either. Oh, wow, life is tough oh, now, Oh, okay, it? here's what I want. August 25th, Birth of a Dragon, the Bruce Lee biopic. <laughs> the latest in a series of Bruce Lee biopics that I think played at TIFF 
last uh, last festival to little acclaim. Yeah, famous for making a white guy its central protagonist. <laughs> and it's coming out uh, August 25th, the traditional worst weekend of the year. Uh, <laughs> I love August 25th because that's where you occasionally get like, well, that's where you get like real B pictures like uh, Pierce Brosnan movies and uh, Jet Li movies and that sort of thing. I'm excited for um, Steven Soderbergh, speaking of people that are retiring, coming back with Logan Lucky, his movie about a heist that takes place at a NASCAR race. Okay, so that's that's your summer movie season. Uh, hey, we didn't get any letters this week, but let's try a little bit of audience interaction. Let's say some of you folks out there want to write in and tell us about what you're looking... I can't even... I can't even say it. <laughs> what are you looking for? I actually don't care what you're looking forward to. I take it back. <laughs> Because I don't, I don't want to read a letter uh, that has saying I want. I'm looking forward to Pirates of the Caribbean and Spider-Man: Homecoming. And... I like how, how you're, <laughs> you couldn't even get that sentence out. Send us a letter. Listen, we got no letters, but send us a letter about. I don't want to read that letter. <laughs> I have. I to be clear, I do not care about anyone's thoughts about summer movie season. It's a wasteland. Nope, love it. Send, Super excited. Send us a letter about Saijin Suzuki if you must. Yeah, defend him. Tell us yeah. why. He's very important to you if he is or if he's not. Yeah. So uh, where can they reach us? It's important cinema club podcast at gmail.com. All right. So what are we doing next week? Next week, I only realized that as we were talking about it, another empty visualist. It's Ridley Scott. Oh, God. I This is somebody. <laughs> you see, Justin wants to cash in on Alien Fever. <laughs> um, and uh, the thought of, of spending... A week immersed in the Scott oeuvre, like, weighs so heavily on him. <laughs> well, but he's so popular with cinephiles everywhere. There's the crushing weight of his filmography. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw some, I can't remember who and it was. And you know that I'm going to come back and be like, I watched 20 of his films. I saw somebody tweet this week. I can't remember who it was, but it was, like, accurate. There was somebody said, has anybody conveyed less joy in making films than Ridley Scott? <laughs> I, I, think like, that's, I like that's to say that Ridley Scott is a filmmaker who's put me to sleep more than any other filmmaker I know. You know, we were looking at his IMDb. BB and there were a ton of movies there where I was like I can't believe he directed that like Hannibal I did not even know that was I, I don't Scott. know what it is about Ridley Scott but there's an I just have a fascination with his filmography I don't share it but like how does how did he get to where he is in the popular imagination he's one of the few filmmakers that I would say like everybody knows who they are um and he's just a hack <laughs> all right well maybe next week you're gonna come back on the episode and go you know I was wrong I watched the two movies we picked to watch next week, A Good Year and Robin Hood, and I changed my mind. <laughs> now, I'm going to watch The Duelist on your yeah, recommendation, right. and I'm going to check out a movie I've never seen called Black Hawk Down. I saw Black Hawk Down in the theater. Okay. Um, and I will be revisiting it as well to be able to discuss it. And I think that it's not only going to be a conversation about Ridley Scott, but also about, like you said, He's what a filmmaker like Steven Spielberg that everybody knows. Why is that? Yeah, because he's made a lot of movies that a lot of people have seen. I guess. Well, so, we'll see. Sorry, I should have saved that for next week. <laughs> My name's Justin the Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Justin, you and I had some fun this week. We stepped a little bit of outside of our uh, usual uh, milieu. And by that, uh, Will means I was hired to film an event. <laughs> yes, uh, you were hired to film an event, and I uh, was invited to be a guest at the event because I'm kind of a cool scenester in uh, Toronto. We both went to the Prism Prize, uh, which is uh, an award show for Canadian music videos. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of glamorous people there, a lot of a lot of beautiful looking people. Some collagen, I would say, was there. Uh, Some what? Collagen. What does that mean? 
you don't know collagen it's the, it's the lip injection oh okay yes stuff. i understand i thought that there was another slang term that described something else no. like riffraff or no no a little bit of plastic surgery there mm. um i know you your face has looked a little smoother than it has I, i'm so so glad you noticed <laughs> justin <laughs> Uh, a little unnatural. Going to the Sylvester Stallone direction. Uh, probably this like perma smile frozen <laughs> and, and the two. My, You're like, I hate my, summer movies. My two perpetually raised eyebrows <laughs> like Stallone has. Uh, so we watched, uh, you filmed the event. We watched 10 of uh, what a panel of experts determined were the best music videos of the year. One of which looked a lot like Suicide Squad. I yes, it say. did. Yep. Um, I'll say I had a, I had a good time. Uh, no matter what you think of uh, the work in question, uh, they were short and they were punchy and they had a lot of stuff going on in them. And it was like watching movie trailers. It was super exactly. Fun. Um, I made sure to keep the announcers in focus, <laughs> and I enjoyed watching the music videos as well. But this raises a question for me, uh, which is, what do you think of music videos in relation to cinema? Are there any that you think? that you've seen and let's not kid ourselves we're not experts on music videos. no we did we did no research for this but are there any that you've seen that you think of like as movies almost so i'm gonna tell you right now that when i think of music videos i think specifically of a series of dvds that was released in the mid-2000s that were the works of michelle gondry spike jones Mm. i I know the one you're talking about yeah Uh, yeah there were some other ones too uh the guy who did Birth, why is that name? Jonathan oh, Glazer. Glazer, yeah. that's right. And I watched these DVDs nonstop. I would show everybody that would come to my house because music videos, especially the ones by like Gondry or Jones, are like one idea packed into one three minute frame mm. that you can just kind of explore. And personally, I think that the best music videos are the ones that take one idea and then spin it in interesting mm. ways. Like it doesn't have to be a narrative. The worst music videos are the ones that do the narrative badly that start with like a five minute intro and do oh, a song. I hate that. It's like, don't waste my time. <laughs> exactly. just, just make a movie instead. I mean, I'm, I'm except te- for thriller. Well, okay, I was going to get to that. Like, I'm, I'm tempted to say that I like, uh, you know, like Trapped in the Closet or something like that. But does that That's really, not really a music video. Yeah, it's it's almost like a movie. Yes. Um, but Michael Jackson is the guy I think of, you know, uh, when I think of music videos and film. Not only because his videos were so ambitious, but also because they employed so many, like, actual filmmakers. So John Landis <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, did Thriller. And I mean, it it's kind of like a John Landis movie. Yep, absolutely. Uh, I remember as a kid watching the making of Thriller <laughs> that was like almost as popular as the Thriller music video itself because my sister would watch it on loop. Thriller, you know, it's a little it's a little corny, it's a little cheesy, mm-hmm. but it's a good, I think, mix of sensibilities between Michael Jackson and John Landis. Uh, I think they both have a shared love of kind of like kitschy Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it captures captures wacko jacko as the press call, as the press dubbed him at the prime of his talent yeah absolutely and, uh i also uh, have seen a martin scorsese's bad that's right yeah uh, which i i'm I, bad i think has aged a little poorly yes uh, not my favorite marty film that was a around his color of money period wasn't yeah, it yeah <laughs> the the trying to you trying know i'm cool with the graces. kids right yeah. i can do studio pictures i can't make the last temptation of christ because it's the <laughs> 80s um but uh, i think my favorite michael jackson video is you rock my world from 2001 Possibly we talked about this on the Brando episode. Oh, isn't this the one where Michael Jackson doesn't appear? No, Michael Jackson's in it. It opens with Michael Jackson and Chris Tucker, and they're like... Oh, I completely uh, forgot about this. So I remember. So my sister was the biggest Michael Jackson fan, (laughs) and there was that kind of... 
uh, silent period where Jackson was kind of gone for a while in the nineties. Right. Yeah. And the, then he came back. Th- that w- there was a huge comeback attempt. Huge. Yeah. Uh, and so this video starts with Michael Jackson and Chris Tucker and they're like wearing fedoras and stuff. And they're like, and they're this, like, you know, Chris Tucker's doing his fast talking. They're shit. like in, in a forties diner in this uh, sexy woman walks past the diner and these two guys look at each other like, Oh man, she's so fine. I gotta go follow her. <laughs> Michael Jackson's frozen. But Michael, features. Ja- Michael Jackson, alleged child molester, uh, loves this girl. Anyway, they, they follow her to this uh, club where they find out, I guess she's a gangster's mole. Yeah. Michael Madsen's mole, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> he's there. And so there's a dance off. And then we find out the big boss on the top floor. Michael is, Jackson's best friend. Yeah. Michael Jackson's best friend, Marlon Brando, who uh, used to visit Neverland Ranch and be fed whole chickens. I heard. <laughs> well, there's that um, story that Michael Jackson, Elizabeth Taylor and Marlon Brando <laughs> yeah. went on a road trip and it was part of a TV series that they pulled off the air. It's never going to Play. It's never gonna play because they had uh, Joseph Fiennes, I think, play Michael Jackson, <laughs> yeah. who is a white guy. <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, uh, Joseph Fiennes, not Michael Jackson, in case you were wondering. Yeah, uh, and I'm, which actually makes me wonder, like, who could play Michael Jackson at that time? Would Ooh. you get a black guy and like you have put, to, put right? him in white yeah. face? Uh, I don't know. Wouldn't that you... be weird? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know who could. I probably just don't make that movie. Yeah, yeah. Just don't make. It's that's not worth weird the that there's no Michael Jackson bio. There's got to be, right? We just don't. Oh know about. no. I mean, could you imagine the his family is alive and they're very powerful? Well, did you hear that they're supposed to be the uh, stop motion animated Michael Jackson biopic Bubbles, huh. told from the perspective of his monkey? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I think is it. It's not a Charlie Kaufman script. No, I don't think so. But, but you could never make a Michael Jackson biopic because like you would have to deal with the molestation allegations and mm-hmm. how could you do that in a way that satisfies the family and satisfies like anyone else? I don't know. I mean, yeah. all right, so this is the Michael Jackson mini cast. So let's yeah. talk about uh the Moonwalker. <laughs> Moonwalker, yeah. Or Michael Jackson's ghosts. Did you ever see that? <laughs> yeah, I did. Oh, fucking hilarious. Well, they tried to recapture that thriller magic. Oh, Captain EO? Yeah, Captain.